0: I have uh, reserved to myself the pleasure of uh, introducing Professor Joseph Weiler, who will be delivering the keynote address for this uh, conference. Uh, Those of us who are between the two uh, shores uh, and between Canada and Mexico often imagine, thoughtlessly, that the issue of religion and politics, uh, religion and public life, or indeed church and state, uh, is an issue uh, unique to us. Uh, it is not, of course. Uh, it is a worldwide uh, issue uh, and a perennial issue. And so I'm delighted uh, that our keynote speaker this afternoon is uh, indeed our nation's uh, uh, leading authority uh, on the subject of European comparative uh, law and will be able to uh, address us uh, on the subject of religion and public life uh, in contemporary Europe. Professor Weiler is the Joseph Strauss Professor and European Union Jean Monnet Chair uh, in New York University in the School of Law there. He also chairs NYU's Global Law School Program and is Director of the Jean Monnet Center for International and Regional Economic Law and Justice. In addition to that, he is a professor at the College of Europe, Bruges, and an honorary professor at University College London. Uh, he is also, uh, just to complete the list, uh, a uh, member of the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. His recent publications include uh, A Christian Europe, uh, which is available in uh, several languages, but alas, not yet in English. I've been pressing Joseph uh, even today, uh, again, uh, for an English translation of that very important book. Uh, He's also the author with uh, I Beg and J. Peterson of Integration in an Expanding European Union, uh, and with Gita Berka of the European Court of uh, Justice, as well as other books and uh, articles, Professor Weiler is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and founding editor of, European, of the European Journal of International Law and of the European uh, Law Journal and the World Trade Review. It's a very, very great personal uh, privilege for me to introduce our keynote spe- speaker, Professor Joseph Weiler.
1: Thank you very much. It's uh, also an honor and a privilege uh, for me to be here, and I thank you for your kind words. I wish my mother was here every time you introduce me. <laughs> now, the debate about the so-called European Constitution and the religious question, I thought would, when I saw when I was to speak would be, could be thought of exactly right for an after-lunch speech, good occasion to yawn and doze off in the sense of being there, heard that. The Being there is yet another constitutional debate about the correct place of religion in public life and the heard that is the argument that any official acknowledgement of religion by public institution and in public life would violate the neutrality of the state and all the rest. And so now we are told that this kind of debate of separationism, which, as Professor Joe says, is a perennial of American constitutional politics, uh, is happening in Europe, so what's new? And one can go to sleep for the next 45 minutes. Uh, How many ways can there be to be naked? (laughs) But I invite you to listen, because I think that there are interesting twists to this European... uh, pale, which go beyond the interests of Europe. And in particular, what is interesting because unlike the debate in the United States, where in some real sense it's where the knife meets the flesh, about the ability of institutions to do certain things, to dispense money and so forth, the debate in Europe and it's been a ferocious debate and a very public visible debate. In fact, it saved the Constitutional Convention because but for this debate most Europeans wouldn't even know that a Constitutional Convention was taking place and a new Constitution. I say this with no sarcasm or irony as an empirical statement. It's about identity. The debate became about identity and maybe I can underline this point because if we look into the body of the Constitution, not only do we find the usual formula which try to strike a balance between freedom of religion and freedom from religion and then let the authorities muddle through the inevitable gray zone that exists between the two, but we find something that to an American ear would be considered... Very, very strange. The union respects and does not prejudice the status under national law of churches and religious associations or communities in the member states. What's more, recognizing their identity and their specific contribution, the union shall maintain an open, transparent, and regular dialogue with these churches and organizations. That's in the dispositive, in the positive law part of the constitution. So you would have thought that with this sort of benign attitude towards the place of churches and religious institutions, that I did skip one sentence which said it also equally respects the status of philosophical and non-confessional organizations, which everybody in Europe knows is a code for masonry.
2: Oh.
1: <laughs> I said this again with no irony, it's an empirical statement I made. Mm-hmm. My friend Giuliano Amato quipped, why if philosophical associations are to be recognized not mathematical or historical? But what could wonder, if there is this sort of benign attitude towards the uh, position of churches and religious organization to the extent that it could be written into the Constitution itself, why such a furore when it was proposed that first in the the preamble to the Constitution, there might be an invocatio dei, a reference to God, and as the Pope repeatedly requested, in fact, in one period of time, nine successive weeks in his Angelus on Sunday, that there be a reference to the Christian roots among the roots of European civilization. And that created a furore, and at the end of the day, it was rejected. No invocatio dei, no reference to Christian roots. And the debate was all about identity and how to self understand. In other words, it was not informed by should there be religion taught in public schools or should the state be able to finance somebody who wants to study theology or all the cases with which uh, the United States grappled. It was how do we want to declare ourselves towards ourselves and towards the rest of the world because it's understood that the preamble of a constitution in some way is a statement of who we are, who we want to think we are, and who we want to be. And when it was defined in those terms, the hackles came out and the debate was ferocious and it was rejected and Analysing that debate I think is quite instructive in understanding the peculiar nakedness or the particular nakedness of the European public square. But let's first things first and we said thirty five minutes so forty. It.
2: it started
1: already three it started already three or four years ago, when ahead of the constitution Europe drafted its Charter of Fundamental Rights in many respects an unexceptional document. It was the result of the usual kind of negotiations which one has about those documents. The dividing line being between those who wanted expansive social rights and those who wanted restrict the protection of fundamental rights to the more traditional liberties. And the usual type of compromises were found and that could be the subject of an interesting other debate. But in drafting the preamble to the Charter of Rights, which at that time stood apart from the Constitution and now has been integrated into this so-called Constitution, I should say, and explain in a minute, several delegates to the Convention which drafted the Charter said, could there be a reference to Christian values which inform the discourse of fundamental rights, at least part of the discourse of fundamental rights in Europe? if not that, more generically to God. And then in retreat, at least could there be a reference to religious values, which inform, after all, in their view, at least part of the discourse of human dignity and fundamental human rights. And that convention said resolutely no. Not only, of course, could there not be a reference to Christianity or even generically to God, but even the word religion would offend what has to be in a charter which protects freedom of religion. The word religion could not appear in the preamble to that charter, and the compromise there was a reference to the spiritual values of Europe, which informed this document except in the German version where the Germans sneakily argue that spiritual might be understood in German as spiritualist. (laughs) (laughs) And they managed to sneak in actually an allusion to religion in the German version alone. Let's fast forward. Much can be said about that, but we need not say it right now. To the actual Constitution. So the decision was made to try and give constitutional form to the treaty that founds the European Union. And once again, the issue came up whether there should be a reference to God and or to the Christian roots of Europe in the preamble to that constitution. Now, I should say that what I don't want to argue, and in fact it's a very sensitive issue, is from a religious point of view, would it be an advisable thing or how significant it would be to make a reference to God in the preamble to the Constitution? And I set that question aside. But I'm going to deal with it in constitutional terms. And one may ask, What motivated those who proposed both a reference to God or a reference to Christian roots in the preamble? Now, it should be noted that in Europe, there are many constitutions without a preamble. The Italian constitution has no preamble. The Austrian constitution has no preamble and the new constitution for Europe could have elected not to have a preamble, and in some respects the problem would have been avoided or at least buried. But at the moment that it was decided by the convention that there would be a preamble, and that indeed the preamble would try to capture both, note, the historical sense, expressis verbis, the waves of civilization. It opened with a quote from Tuclidides, in the original Greek, "Our constitutions, three dots, is called a democracy, because power is in the hands not of the minority, but of the general number. this. And is rife with allusions to the values of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment. The very first paragraph says, "Conscious that Europe is a continent that has brought forth civilization." that its inhabitants arriving in successive waves from earliest times have gradually developed the values underlining humanism. What are the values underlying humanism? Equality of persons, freedom, respect for reason. With that kind of vocabulary, with that kind of symbology, with that kind of iconography, there were those who thought maybe if we talk about the successive waves from earliest time, there should be recognition of the role that Christian culture, that Christian values played in the development of the European civilization of which we are so proud and which is set forth. And maybe among those values that underline the notion of equality of person, freedom, and respect for reason, should not only be the word humanism as a code for secularism, but also religion, which has have something to say about the equality of persons' freedoms and respect for reason. Again, the debate was very ferocious. The arguments I need not uh, rehearse too extensively uh, It was the usual arguments about the state or public authority has to be above all these things, has to be neutral, that an acknowledgement of God, of Christian roots. Note, this is not establishing Christianity as the official church of Europe, would be inimical to that kind of neutrality. And eventually, as a huge concession, it was agreed that the word religion. would be inserted into the preamble. Not as part of the humanism which ensures equality of persons, freedom, and respect for reason, but drawing inspiration from the cultural, religious, and humanist inheritance of Europe. Now, one can ask beyond a sort of atavistic feeling, which I explained, well, if you are there, we also want to be there, that can motivate or could have motivated some of those who who argued for an invocatio dei or for a reference to Christian roots. Was there, what would be the principled constitutional argument? And then we will move beyond that in trying to understand both the claim and the reaction to the claim. The fact of the matter is that the constitutional landscape in Europe is unlike that which we habituated to discuss in the United States. Let me focus first indeed on iconography or constitutional symbology. You have on the one side a state like France. Article two of its constitution, indeed article one, declares itself to be laic, secular. A republic which is social and secular. It's a declaration of identity. That's how we understand ourselves. And there are constitutions that follow in the French tradition, not many, like the Italian constitution, which does not declare itself to be laic, but which banishes any religious symbology from its constitution. And that is a respected and respectable part of the constitutional landscape landscape in Europe. But if we just cross the border from France into Germany, the German constitution begins with the words, aware of our responsibility before God and man. The Irish constitution Constitution makes an explicit reference to the Holy Trinity of which all truth ultimately derives in the Constitution in the preamble the Greek Constitution the Maltese Constitution the Spanish Constitution makes a special although of course it guarantees freedom of religion and religious freedom makes a special reference to the special position of the Catholic Church and at the very opposite extreme of the French constitutional choice are the Danes and the British. There is an official church in Denmark. The Lutheran Church is the official church in Denmark. And in Britain, the queen is not only the head of the state. She is the head of the church, the Church of England. Now, what is important? Now, let me say something also not about constitutional symbology, but actually the relationship between church and state. Also here we have a variety. Even in Laïque France, there are departments which priests are paid from the public purse. In Holland, there are schools, secular schools and religious schools, and in Belgium the same, which are financed by the state. In England there are of course Church of England states. In Germany every citizen has to tick off to opt out of a form in his or her income tax form which a percentage would go to the churches. And if they do not tick it, the state will collect the money for the church and give it to the church. Because the German constitutional (coughs) tradition favors a cooperative relationship between the church and the state, and a subject which is touchy in this country, most social welfare in Germany is administered through church institutions on behalf of the state, to the tune of billions of euros. Now I get to the point I was trying to make. All this is done under the watchful eye of the European Court on Human Rights in Strasbourg, which administers the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the common constitutional ground of all European states, which of course guarantees freedom of religion and freedom from religion. And under this watchful eye, it has never been found that to have an established church in Britain or in Denmark or in Malta or in Greece violates the guarantees of constitutional liberalism which the European Convention on Human Rights assures. Nor has it been found that a reference to God in the German Constitution or a reference to the Holy Trinity in the Irish Constitution violates those undertakings. Nor has it been found that the examples I gave of entanglement between church and state in the various European member states violates these guarantees. In other words, this broad panoply of both symbology and actual entanglement is all considered within the constitutional liberal tradition which respects freedom of religion and freedom from religion. Put it differently, I have never heard anybody seriously claim that Denmark is a less liberal country than France, despite the fact that in France, secularism is written into the Constitution and Denmark has a religious state. In fact, the preferred port of entrance to most immigrants to Europe, including religious immigrants from Muslim country, would be the Lutheran Danish state and not necessarily the French laic state. The constitutional argument, therefore, for an invocatio day in the preamble to the European Constitution rested in the first place on the argument that this Constitution has to reflect the constitutional tradition common to the citizens of Europe. And in fact, half the population of Europe, over 200 million people, live in constitutional orders, the constitutions of which make an explicit reference either to God or to Christianity. And the claim was made, if this constitution is to reflect as it claims to reflect, its official motto is unity and diversity, to represent not only the unity in relation of questions of religion and of state, which is the operational part which says we all respect freedom of religion and freedom from religion, but also respect the symbology, the identity, it would have to find a way not to exclude the constitutional sensibilities of those orders under which half the population lives. Now, two objections were typically raised in this debate. One was, how can, it's a binary choice, if somebody declares laïcité as his or her religion, a reference to God would be as offensive as somebody who is religious and there's no reference to God. The Poles found a solution in their modern constitutions because the Polish constitution says, we the Polish people, it says as much more elegantly as I will now quote from memory, we the Polish people, those who believe in the values of truth and beauty and justice deriving from God, and those who believe in those values as deriving from other sources, and they say it in a much more elegant way, come together as the people of Poland, etc., etc. And the constitutional argument was that if the will existed, Europe could define and articulate a formula which would be equally respectful for those constitutional traditions which think of themselves and declare themselves to be laic, and those who would like to see as part of their constitutional symbology as the identity, a religious identity in the case of Europe, Christianity. So there would be a way to overcome the binary choice if one wanted to. The second objection, mostly from constitutional lawyers, was to say, one cannot, they would say to me, you cannot separate the preamble from the actual positive constitutional law. And if you have a reference to God or a reference even as benign or as mild to Christian roots alongside Tukhididis and all the rest, that would by force influence the judges and the constitutional court when they have to interpret open-ended provisions in the Constitution, which is inevitable, Because now they will be interpreting them influenced by a religious sensibility and that should not happen because that would be like introducing religion into the actual positive constitutional law of the European Constitution. But the reply here was simple. It is true that judges, when they interpret constitutional provisions, do it in the light of the preamble and the values that it articulates but judges who interpret the European constitution, it would be inappropriate for them to interpret it in a light of a preamble that gave the impression that the European constitutional tradition was monolithically like when it's not. When 200 million of its citizens live under constitutions which have chosen to affirm their religiosity or their Christianity in the very constitutional document. The judges in Europe interpreting the European Constitution would have to find a way, not an easy task, to conduct their interpretation with this double sensibility in their mind. It is, the argument did not prevail, but there was an even deeper argument. And the deeper argument that has been articulated was to do with not the self-understanding identity of Europe, but also its projected identity. And the argument runs as follows. There is, we know in this world, still in many societies, a tension between democracy and non-democracy. And, of course, in a profound way, we, would believe, we believe that the world would be a better place if other societies, if all societies, espoused a democratic structure of governance. Now, it is often thought, and this could be the lesson projected by French and American constitutional separationism, strange bedfellows, that the price of democracy is to consign religion to the private sphere. That if you want to be democratic, any expression of religion has to belong to the private sphere. That all the Constitution will do is guarantee your right to religious freedom in your private sphere, but the public sphere has to be naked. In some profound sense, that is the message that French and American constitutionalism as interpreted currently might be seen to be projecting. Democracy means religious is part of the private sphere. The public sphere has to be naked. The argument in Europe was that is precisely not what European constitutionalism projects and should project. Because the fact is that in the European constitutional space, Germany is an equal member as is. Denmark is an equal member as great Denmark is an equal member as Italy's that great Britain is as much european as France is that what europe says is it is quite okay to have religious symbology it is quite okay in your public space to acknowledge your religious even your christian identity because Europe has a French model which is respected, but it also has a Danish Lutheran state. It has an Italian model which it respected. It respects. In the European constitutional space, religious, religion and democracy, even in the public square, have learned to live peaceably together. And the message that the European Constitution should be projecting in terms of that relationship should not, it was argued, be exclusively the French-Italian laic message, but the compound European message by uns, for us, France and Denmark, Germany and Italy are equally legitimate expressions of the entanglement of religion and state. They both correspond to our notion of a democratic constitutional or liberal democratic constitutional space. I find the argument quite strong. And the question is, why did it fail? Now, I want to say, in terms of the day-to-day life in Europe, as we will, I will also explain in a minute, it's not very consequential, this failure. It's not as if suddenly a school will have to shut because it's not getting funding. Life will go on as before. The debate is important indeed because it was conducted at the identity level and because what it teaches us on the self understanding in Europe of Europe's chart. And in that respect, you see that I'm driving towards a different type of nakedness. So why did it fail? I'm going to explain this briefly in three different ways. I'm going to start with an anecdote, and I apologize for the name-dropping. Three weeks ago, I was invited to a private dinner with the Dutch Prime Minister, who is the President in office of the European Union, and was very taxed by the question of Turkish entry into the Union, and Giscard d'Estaing. And we talked about the issues that we're talking about now. And Giscard Stang said, but Professor Weiler, you realize that only four states forcefully claimed for an invocatio day or a reference to Christian roots. Italy, Spain, Poland. Scleroticism sets in. <laughs> I will remember in a minute. Italy, Spain, Poland. Bear with me. One other state. Not Great Britain. Interestingly, not Ireland, etc. And he said... In the convention, there were those of us who really wanted a reference to Christian roots. But we failed to get consensus. We didn't get the vote. And the Dutch prime minister, who is, I don't know if he's a fervent Calvinist, but certainly publicly affirms his Christian faith, said, I also wanted it very strongly the reference to an invocatio de and Christians so the first thing I said uh, Mr. President addressing d'Estaing, how did you vote in the convention and he said I voted for it and then I said but why did you accept that the default position was that you had to have a consensus that it should be in if you voted for it why didn't you have an invocatio day in the first draft that you put before the convention and have a consensus to vote it out? Why did you accept that the constitutional presumption should be the naked square rather than the other way round? And he was a bit flummoxed. But for me, this was not a debating point. It begins to be And I asked the Dutch prime minister, and why didn't your government press for this? Why didn't your government, for example, say, as the French government said, if there will be a reference to God or to Christianity, we will veto the Constitution? Because they had the power of veto. So I turned to the Dutch prime minister and I said, if you so strongly believed in this and you tell me that you found the arguments in my book Persuasive which are a more elaborate version of what I explained to you now that to ask for this is not in the name of some kind of religious faith but in the name of a true commitment to the type of pluralism that Europe professes and to a true type of neutrality which respects the equality of the constitutional (coughs) traditions in matter of church and state, why didn't you do what the French did and say, if it's not in, I will veto the Constitution? And he said, because I'm a former professor and I thought that would be constitutionally inappropriate. (laughs) But I'm not being sarky and I don't want to ridicule him because somewhat crassly in my book, and I apologize for it, The point, the most interesting point for me was not to make the advocacy argument or the constitutional objective argument, here are the reasons why this would be appropriate. If you're going to have this preamble, it must reflect the pluralistic tradition that you're proclaiming to have. But to try and understand the failure. And crassly I said there were two reasons for the failure. Something that can be called Christophobia and something that can be called a Christian ghetto. Of course, both, I put all the necessary disclaimer about relativization of the Shoah and all the rest. But I deliberately wanted to choose these things. And they intermingle. And they intermingle in the very debate or the very anecdote that I told you about the dinner a few weeks ago in The Hague let me say something about the Christian ghetto. Let, I look at the world with which I am familiar, which is one has to rush the world of academia. There are many Christian scholars, and I don't mean Christian in the born in the Christian sense, but affirming in the universities in Europe. Indeed, there are Christian universities, La Cattolica de Milano, the Catholic uh, University of Brussels, the Catholic University of Leuven. Outside the sphere of Christian theologians talking to each other, I sent my research assistant to the library. She examined 200 books published in the last five years on European integration. Many of the authors I know to be people who go regularly to church. In five out of the 200 was there reference to Christianity in the index. And usually when you find it, it's to the Christian Democrat Party. (laughs) You would also be surprised to know that when you want to become a professor at the Libre University of Brussels, for example, you have to sign a statement that you affirm that you will only be guided by reason, that any form of revealed truth cannot be reasoned. Today, 2004, not 1904. And one has the impression that even one's Christian colleagues, they have internalized the notion that if you want to be scientific or objective, you leave Christianity when you leave your home and you arrive at the office. And Giscard, who said to me, I voted for inclusion of a reference to Christian roots in the Constitution of Europe, had internalized the notion that the constitutional presumption has to be laicite, and that the onus is on the others to prove that it should be in, and if they fail to reach a consensus, obviously the default is out. Much to think about it. Now, mindful of the clock, one could explain deeper these notions of Christophobia and the Christian ghetto, but there's a third argument that is raised, and it is we believe in a multicultural society a reference to Christian roots, what will our Jewish friends say, our Jewish citizens say, what will our Muslim citizens say? After all, in France alone, there are five million Muslims. And the assumption is, the assumption is that if you have a reference to the Christian roots of Europe, alongside the other roots, the Enlightenment and Humanism and all the rest which are already there, Somehow, your, Christian citizen, your Jewish citizens and your Muslim citizens will feel in some way excluded, not part of Europe, slighted, etc. Now, it is true that some politicians who argued for this reference did not argue for reference to the Christian roots, but to the Judeo Christian roots, which personally I'm quite skeptical about, whether that was necessary. Because the serious question can be asked. If you are a Jew living in Europe or you are a Muslim living in Europe, would you feel excluded if what to most people seems a banal empirical fact, that in articulating the roots of Christian civilization, Christianity played a critical role, that you can... (laughs) that you cannot even deal with the laic Europe without an understanding of a Christian Europe because there's such a dialectical relationship between them. Because in some way, the French Revolution and its value is in play with that. Would a Jew or Muslim feel slighted? Does the leader of the British opposition, Mr. Howard, who is a Jew, feel in any way less British? then the Prime Minister, Mr. Blair, who is Christian by the fact that in England there's a church of state and that if he one day should swear allegiance as Prime Minister, he would swear allegiance to the head of the state who is also the head of the Church of England? I doubt it. In fact, a Jew or Muslim Let me ask one more rhetorical question. Would anybody think it even worth commenting upon the fact that if Egypt, for example, were tomorrow to rewrite its constitution and make a reference to the Muslim roots, and not more than that, of Egyptian civilization alongside other roots, Jews in Egypt or Christians in Egypt, the Coptic community, would because of that feel slighted? Maybe the Jew and Muslim in Europe, in fact, would feel reassured that a society which has the confidence to acknowledge what I said, the banal empirical fact, is still not only willing but welcoming to accept them as fully-fledged citizens with equal rights and duties who play a full role in this very European civilisation. Take the example of my kids, all of them are European citizens. We raise them in the Jewish faith. The poor things have to study not only Hebrew, but also Aramaic. But we also raise them in, we also tell them, you're not, you not only heirs to this great civilization of which we belong, but you're also heirs to a European civilization. So the poor things have to study French and Spanish. Do we take them to a museum and in front of a Madonna and Bambino ask them to shut their eyes and say, that offends you? Or when we listen to music, do we exclude Bach's, Matthew's passion? This is part of European culture. This is part of European identity. To the extent that you are European, that has to be acknowledged as part of your culture. What's the problem? In fact, the problem might be in a polity that out of a deference to its, for example, its Jewish and Muslim citizens would want to deny that which is, as I said, a banal empirical truth in articulating the various roots of its civilization of which it is proud, which brings me to the instance of the Fulaud and the instance of the claims or calls now in a country like Italy that may be in the schools, the schools of the state, there should be instruction in tolerance among the different religions. Let's talk for a minute about the Fulaud. For reasons of public order, France decrees that no longer may Muslim girls wear their foulard when they go to school. But they also decree that Christians can no longer wear a cross, or at least a big visible cross, sort of hanging here, and Jews cannot show up with a skull What is the message? I think it's p- totally appropriate for the state who's responsible for ensuring public order to take measures which sometimes come, no right is absolute. Our freedom of speech is compromised by our need to preserve the dignity of other purposes. so defamatory speech we control. But the message that the French decree sends is not that we will not tolerate religious intolerance, which is an appropriate message. I do not remember in the last 20 years bands of Christian youth bandishing a cross running after Muslims and Jews. Nor do I remember in the last 20 years bands of Jewish kids with yarmulkes harassing Muslim or Christian kids. The message which is sent is not that we will not tolerate religious intolerance. The message is that religion is intolerant. As such, and therefore, an expression of religious symbology, even by communities who are totally peaceable about their religious practice, will not be tolerated in the public school. The proposals in Italy, which now one reads upon, where we have to perhaps start instructions in the public school of the tolerance among the different religions. Think about it. The notion is we, the secular state, have a problem of religious intolerance. And therefore what we should do in our school is to teach the tolerance among religious communities. But the truth is in Italy, the only intolerance which one can find is not the intolerance of Jew towards Christian or Christian towards Jew, the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe today, and that is a troubling fact, has no religious roots. This is not religious anti-Semitism. This is not religious anti-Semitism. The intolerance that one finds in the public space in Europe is an intolerance of secular towards religious. Religious. And there's something breathtaking in the state coming in and saying the way to deal with this is we have to teach Christians how to be tolerant towards Jews and Muslims. Really the message should be we have to teach ourselves how to be tolerant towards the secular citizens in our midst now that in Europe and we get to the third dimension of the naked public space in Europe is predominantly a secular country. In a thin sense, most Europeans would identify themselves as Christians. In other other words, there is still a majority in most countries who will baptize their children, who will marry in a religious ceremony, and when they die will be comforted to have a priest or a religious person by their bedside. But if you look into the churches, they are largely empty. Not in all countries, but they are largely empty. Which I mention here as I draw to a conclusion. The naked public square in Europe is of a peculiar, peculiar kind. From a constitutional point of view, it offers, in fact, something that for some people in the United States could only be considered a promised land. A degree of constitutional tolerance in the various member states, like Denmark, like, which acknowledges a degree of entanglement, which truly says that the state will respect both religiosity and secularity on equal footing, which will finance religious schools and will finance secular schools. Which will allow a constitution to open with the words the Holy Trinity, etc. So, from a strict constitutional point of view, in some ways, Europe offers a public square which is much more hospitable to religious expression and much more hospitable to the idea that neutrality of the state does not mean secularity, but means true neutrality, dealing in an equal way with different religions and dealing with an equal way with the religion and the non-religious. The nakedness of the European public square is in two other areas. It's in identity in the first place. When one comes to symbology, when one comes to iconography, the new Europe is ferociously, strongly resisting or turning away or fighting against any acknowledgement of that part of its civilization which is called Christianity. And in my view, I say advisedly Christianity It is part of the identity of secular Europe, the fact of not being Christian rather than not being religious. It's the word Christianity which grates. It's the word Christianity which grates. And the second sense of naked public square is with all this constitutional hospitality at some level, the actual practice of religion. Those who will or those who are religious and their willingness to bring it into the public square, where there's more openness towards there, is lacking compared to the United States. So an interesting judgment to be made. Would we prefer a European model with a constitutional hospitality, but people just walking away from that square? Or an American position with constitutional hostility, But a very vibrant community of faith. Thank you very much.
0: I know that there are many, many uh, questions, but unfortunately, we have only time uh, for uh, a brief. Uh, comment and question. And we're very fortunate uh, to have uh, at Princeton and in, on the executive committee of the Madison Program an eminent European scholar of political philosophy. And I would uh, like to recognize uh, him uh, to uh, make a comment or question, Professor Maurizio Veroli.
2: Would would the presence (laughs) of the name reference to God in the Constitution help the Christians? I doubt. When God was mentioning constitutions, the Christian faith was not flourishing. The Christian faith. Here you say it's an empirical fact, it's true, but it's a vague empirical statement in reference to the Christian roots. Which Christianity? The Christianity of St. Francis, St. Dominic, Bernardino of Siena, or the Christianity of the warrior pope? We learn from this type of and learn.
1: Very briefly, you will recall that at my very opening remarks, I said I want to bracket the religious question because it is a deep one. I want to, without going too deeply into it, I just want to offer one possibility why a sincere religious person might want to see a reference to God in the Constitution, which is not a trivial argument and is not simply identity politics. I also I want to be there although I think that's not trivial. Look at the German constitution, the new German constitution after the World War. Aware of our responsibility before man and God. The European constitution to many in Europe is considered a major or historical moment and in some respects a moment of triumph. It coincided with the enlargement of Europe, with the defeat of communism, with the bringing back of Eastern Europe and Western Europe together. I think a lot of people believe that sincerely. And I can imagine that for some religious people, exactly at those moments of triumph, it is good to have a signal of humility. And especially in... Uh, document or in a phenomenon which seems to put so much stock in celebrating human prowess. Now, we might disagree. We might say that empirically it might have the opposite result. But I'm just trying to speculate why, from a religious point of view, that you might want to have it in. I think if the European Constitution did not have a preamble, not much would be lost, and all this argument would have been avoided. But I do think that once it was proposed, and once it took the direction that it took with the opening of Tukhididis and all the rest, so clearly situating itself with one of the civilizatory traditions in Europe, I can see that the question of identity did become important to people. The question of, not as a constitutional argument, but as a question of identity. Why in a document which is meant to reflect who we are, should such an important part of our identity not find reference? I don't think the argument is specious. Now, in my book, I said it might have been a pyrrhic victory. I actually used that expression. It might have led to some of the consequences you mentioned, etc. But I don't think that saying we are here, we are also part of the story. The constitutional sensibility which we represent is represented in the constitutions, which covers half the population, can just be set aside silently without even an argument hey, wait a minute, is this not part of Europe? So, to my mind, that can explain their motivation. If at the end of the day it would have been a good thing, I have my doubts as well. But if at the end of the day I think the debate was a good thing to have taken place, I do think it was a good thing to have taken place. So... If there wasn't this call, if the argument was not vindicated, if all this was not put squarely in the public space, I think the betrayal would have been even deeper. Thank you.
0: I will uh, thank uh, Professor Weiler for his generous uh, response to Professor Veroli. I will deliver to Professor Veroli privately my six decisive points against him. (laughs) (laughs) But we uh, (laughs) we will now (laughs) with this response. Uh, I I, uh, will now take an executive uh, decision that we will move everything back uh, 15 minutes. I'm very grateful for uh, Professor Weiler's uh, presentation. I'm very glad that uh, we did not uh, cut it off because it was so rich. But let's take uh, 15 uh, uh, additional minutes now for our break. And uh, at uh, 15 minutes, 16 minutes past the hour, we will reassemble uh, for the presentation by uh, Professor William Galston, one of our nation's leading uh, political uh, theorists, with responses by Professor Eddie Glode from here in Princeton and uh, Michael uh, Pakalik from Clark University. So I will, uh, let's reassemble in 15 minutes. Please thank Professor